Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you guys are brand new listeners, then welcome to our show. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this episode that we have for you today. I think it's going to be a great one. And if you do enjoy it, we have a lot of other episodes that we've already recorded, so make sure to go check those out. If you are returning, then welcome back. We also hope you'll enjoy this episode. Um, This is a topic that we haven't really touched on too much because it's kind of difficult to talk about um, with Prevention Sense. I'm sure you read the title. You know what we're talking about. We've done a little bit on it, but we've never talked to an actual oncologist about it. So today's going to be brand new. But before we get into it, make sure you sign up for our mailing list if you're not already, um, just to get all of your updates and everything related to that. And make sure you follow our social media. But now let's get into it. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Like I said, we're talking about oncology today, and today we're talking with Dr. Mark Lewis, um, who completed his fellowship in hematology and oncology at the Mayo Clinic and is now board certified in that same specialty, obviously. Um, He is currently director of gastrointestinal oncology at Intermountain Health, specializing in very rare cancers, um, which we'll also talk about later in this episode. And beyond that, he also is a patient himself, which I find is a huge asset to physicians because they kind of understand the process a little bit better. And we'll also let him talk about that. But um, welcome, Dr. Lewis, Mark, to the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Raga. It's really nice to be with you and to um, uh, be able to speak to your listeners. Very generous of you to share your platform. Definitely. Well, first off, kind of who are you? (laughs) What do you do? And how'd you get into the field of oncology? And what do you do on a daily basis? Yeah, I think I can answer that relatively briefly. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm a patient physician, so I always live on the front part of that hyphenate. So when I was literally starting my oncology fellowship at the Mayo Clinic, day one, I had really terrible abdominal pain. And long story short, I realized that I had a hereditary cancer syndrome. And we'll talk about the link to my uh, dad and my other forefathers in a minute. But that meant I saw the entire sort of spectrum of my training um, through the lens of, again, both an incipient oncologist and a patient myself. And I'll say right at the top, I think I'm proof positive to your listeners that not all cancer, sadly, is preventable. This is literally in my genes. Um, I could have been as fastidious as I wanted to be about diet and exercise. And I'll be honest, I'll not, not perfect in that respect. But um, I developed tumors in multiple organs, chiefly my pancreas. So I had to have a, a surgery to remove uh, the dominant tumor in my pancreas in 2017. So you talked about sort of the, the hard-won perspective of the physician who themselves has dealt with the disease. I'm not saying that all oncologists need to have had cancer themselves. I certainly hope that's not the case. But it's given me uh, a little bit of empathy and insight into what patients go through. And finally, to answer your question, I'll say the reason I got into the field is I lost my dad to cancer when um, he was 49 and I was uh, 14. And we had moved from another country. We immigrated from Scotland to the United States. Um, And it was actually his immigration x-ray, which was a weird form of screening. The, The government was trying to make sure he didn't have tuberculosis. 
And they didn't find TB in my dad, who was 42 at the time, but they found that almost his entire right lung was occupied by a mass, and that turned out to be a, a cancer. And actually, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you and your audience is, you know, my father never knew why his cancer developed. And he actually had a strong sense that maybe it was something he could have done um, differently. And I think it's important, and you know, you and I have already talked a little bit in preparation for this interview, to separate, you know, the things that we can control from the things that we can't. That's almost the goal of the serenity prayer, right, is to have the wisdom to know the difference. So it doesn't mean abdicating responsibility for our personal health, but also means that not every cancer is preventable. I think that I was talking with you uh, earlier about this before the episode, but I think that's the line that we're going to toe a lot of times with oncology, which is personal, um, what you can do about it, your personal efforts to reduce your risk as much as you can, but also sometimes stuff just happens or stuff you can't control. And uh, speaking of your story, a lot of the uh, empathy that you show in this, whatever you're speaking of, you can see on his social media. So he's not just saying this for the episode. This is also my reminder, if you're not already following him on social media, to go do so. It's at Mark Lewis uh, MD, I believe. And his first pinned tweet is the story of his father and that how he didn't know what happened. He just ended up with this and it was an unfortunate situation. But today we're going to dive into it a little bit, talk about when you should do some things and uh, when you can't do anything about it, but you can still try to control whatever you can. So before we get there, um, the first question we always ask is, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of talk actually in oncology, Raghav, about whether in our field, rather than saying prevention, we should say risk reduction. And I actually think that's a, a fair, um, some would say a semantic, but I think important distinction is that we can't prevent everything. But there's also a notion, and I think you share this, that listen, our healthcare resources are finite. And obviously during the pandemic, they are particularly strained. And so I think we all have our part to play um, in being as healthy as we reasonably can. And again, that's not just you know, being healthy for your own sake. It's actually arguably an almost altruistic sentiment that, hey, listen, I'm part of a, a, a greater good here, and I want to make sure I'm, I'm doing what I can to stay as healthy as possible. But, you know, bad things happen. And one way I think about the body as an oncologist is you've got all of these cells that are constantly dividing. Um, it's actually kind of a miracle, and I say this very carefully, that we don't see more cancer because, you know, with all these constant replications and all the potential for mistakes – it's only a tiny, tiny fraction of those errors, thankfully, that confer a survival advantage on a, a pre-malignant cell and then lead to cancer. So you know, my view from both uh, the oncologist side and from the patient side is that, yes, we all have a part to play. On the other hand, I have to tell you that there's a tremendous amount of um, shame that still comes uh, to some people when they're diagnosed with cancer. And it wasn't that long ago, maybe 50 years or so, that there was such a stigma associated with cancer uh, that people really didn't talk about it. Like I can trace my genetic syndrome uh, back to my paternal grandfather who was diagnosed in the 1960s. And that was really sort of shrouded in silence. And I think it was only around that time that the New York Times even started printing the word uh, cancer or breast cancer in their pages. And so it's, it's a relatively recent development that we were this transparent uh, about um, cancer. And again, I think sort of in that is a realization that, you know what, you know, we don't need to make these patients feel guilty. Um, not all cancer is avoidable. And then the final part of that, and I realize your listenership is probably extremely health conscious, but the whole way we're trying to decouple smoking and lung cancer. So 
maybe one of the most obvious sort of risk factors for lung cancer is smoking. I'm not here to dispute that. On the other hand, we know that about 15% of lung cancer happens in non-smokers. Ergo, by extension, that means not everybody that smokes and gets lung cancer, you can't just assume there was the smoking that did that, at least not exclusively. So there's a really complicated sort of web of factors that go into any one cancer diagnosis. And I think I'm, I'm pretty cognizant of that because I see just the, the heavy burden that people put upon themselves among everything else they have to deal with when they're diagnosed with cancer and going through treatment. You talked about a lot in that. You said a lot. Um, and I want to first talk about that stigma aspect because it's very unfortunate that a, people are like labeled differently just because they have something that they might not necessarily have had that much control over. And uh, scrolling through Instagram, um, I saw some posts about like um, breast cancer still being highly stigmatized in the South Asian community specifically, um, being part of that community myself. And a lot of people don't talk about it at all. It's just kind of this silent thing that people have to deal with. And it's unfortunate because a lot of times you do need a lot of support when you're in the situation because um, just that kind of disease process where you might not necessarily have the most control over it. Treatments, which are obviously up your wheelhouse, I don't know that much about, but sometimes they're not most effective. And sometimes the cancer just wins because that's cancer and we can't always beat it hundred percent of the time, but it's unfortunate the stigma still exists. Yeah, that's really well said. And thank you for bringing that aspect of, of your community to my attention. And that's a shame because at least in the States, you know, our estimate is the one in eight women in their lifetime will develop breast cancer. And there's a lot of just inherent biology there. Um, and the way that, um, you know, the hormonal milieu of a woman's body through her lifetime uh, may actually be um, sort of a setup uh, for that cancer. And again, there's a very complicated interplay of genetic factors and environmental factors as well. But so thank you for bringing that to my attention. I'll say this, what I see happen most often when someone is diagnosed is a lot of well-intentioned advice, okay? And a lot of that actually comes back to, and we can discuss this too, food. So I think it is a natural instinct, and I, I see this across many cultures, to want to nourish someone when they're sick. Like, you know, sort of the stereotype is, you know, mm-hmm. you make chicken soup for the person that is under the weather. Um, you know, taking that a step further for a patient who's dealing with a chronic illness like cancer, it is very, very natural. And actually, I think very touching that a patient's friends or loved ones want to make food for them when they're sick. On the other hand, the sort of darker side there is some of these nutritional recommendations come with an undercurrent of either explicit or tacit guilt. Like, oh, in the past you were eating this, that was wrong, ergo you developed cancer. Mm -hmm. So now as a corrective action, we're going to change things. And of course, sugar has a huge um, role to play. You know, I've realized, you talked about scrolling Instagram, I've realized there are very, very strong opinions around (laughs) (laughs) sugar. That's to say the least. That's to say the least, right? I actually ran afoul of uh, low-carb Twitter a couple of years back when I was talking about how PET scans work. And it it all ended up for the best. But again, it just brought to my attention. And, you know, these people feel very, very passionate because, again, they are deeply invested in their health. And they feel like if other people were um, similarly sort of adherent to, you know, low-carb diets, keto, what have you, that, um, you know, health outcomes might get better. So, again, I think it comes from a good place. I want to be clear about that. But on the other hand, you know, I know physiology, and I know that our livers will manufacture sugar for us. And so it becomes very, very difficult to completely decouple our metabolism from, say, glucose. So I'll just say that, is that it's often – coming from the best possible place, but you have to be very, very careful not to make the patient feel judged from either their past or current dietary choices. 
Definitely. And I want to table discussion on diet for right now, just because I know that's a massive can of worms that we can open. And there's so many, like, there's a lot of things you can discuss when it comes to nutrition, whether it's like the sugar aspect to it, because a lot of people blame the sugar all the time, but there's so many other things. So we'll table that for now. But I guess the first thing which you already kind of answered was kind of the base definition of what is cancer, because sometimes when people label it, they just know it as the cancer. Yeah. They know that there's like a process happening, but they don't really know what it is. They might not know that I might have cancer right now, but my body will take care of it. That's a natural process that might occur. So what is cancer? Yeah, I, the way I kind of explain it to my patients is it's a it's a, a cluster of cells whose growth has become unchecked. Um, and, you know, I won't, uh, if you were me before the interview, I won't nerd out and list all the hallmarks. And what <laughs> but I will say, you know, if you, th- if you just think about it for a second as a solid mass, which it's not always, but if we're talking about a solid mass, it's a mass it doesn't respect its neighbors. So... If you take a normal cell and put it in, say, a Petri dish, what's supposed to happen is it's supposed to grow and multiply until it comes into some sort of physical barrier, whether that's the um, sort of circumference of the dish or other cells within the dish. And what happens with cancer cells, among many other changes, is they um, have... um, a lack of contact inhibition. So they basically don't care about their neighbors and they just keep growing and growing. Uh, and with that, of course, comes sort of this, and now I'm being anthropomorphic, a, a sense of selfishness where the cancer cells growth is completely unchecked by any of these natural uh, balance mechanisms and just keeps growing and growing, even at the expense of its host, which now we're out of the Petri dish, we're into a, a human mm-hmm. being. Um, and there is a lot um, of concern about, oh, if I'm you know, eating something, am I nourishing the cancer? And of course, the counter argument is, well, if you don't nourish yourself, you know, you're going to die of malnutrition with or without the cancer. So again, that gets very, very tricky. But I, I would, again, boil it down to saying uncontrolled cell growth. And as a very general rule, the way chemotherapy works, chemo is not defined by, you know, an intravenous solution. It can actually these days be given orally. Chemo works by and large by killing the fastest growing cells that that chemical encounters in your body. And by definition, that ought to be cancer. Now, the way that medical oncologists like myself have gotten, let's be honest, kind of a bad reputation is that for many, many years, in an attempt to kill the fast growing cells, we've incurred a lot of indiscriminate toxicity. My own father actually wrote that his chemo was killing the the bad cells at only a slightly faster rate than the good ones, which mm-hmm. I, really stuck with me as his son and now as a doctor is that that's our balance. Like, how do you how do you selectively kill the faster bad actors while leaving the normal regenerative cells alone? That's where you know the hair loss comes from, the lining of our mouth and and our, our gut, our skin's constantly being replaced. So that's the balancing act. And the million dollar question now is what we were kind of alluding to at the beginning is there's factors you can control and things that you can't. What are some of the things that you can control when it comes to cancer risk? Yeah, great question. So um, my favorite book about cancer um, was written by Siddhartha Mukherjee, who is like the poet laureate of oncology. And he wrote this book called The Emperor of All Maladies um, about a decade ago. And there's since been a PBS series uh, as well. And um, in that book and in his subsequent book, The Gene, he sort of elucidates a very simple and yet comprehensive formula. Okay, So what he says is all the things that happen to us are some combination of genetics, environment, triggers, and chance. Okay, So we can go through this kind of parts of the sum individually. So let's start with genetics. I actually think there is tremendous power in knowing your family history. So for instance, 
you know, like I told you earlier, I was 30 years old. I kind of walked into the buzzsaw of my own genetic syndrome. But now that I know that I carry that gene, I've actually been able to test my kids. So my gene gets passed down 50-50 chance to each child. So my son has it and my daughter doesn't. So I can tell you as a parent, and I'm married to a pediatrician, so I'm in very good hands in terms of how he's being raised and followed. Um, you know, we can actually see a lot of his problems coming. And so one aspect of preventative medicine is actually knowing to the best of your ability, your own genetics. So I actually manage myself and I manage my, my son's health differently with the knowledge that we carry this specific gene. And there are really robust examples. You talked about breast cancer, you know, the BRCA mutations. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that women in particular, and men, but women in particular can modify their cancer risk. I mean, Angelina Jolie is a famous example. Like when she self-disclosed that she was a BRCA uh, mutation carrier, that had an immediate impact on our field. We actually called it the Angelina effect because we saw this mm -hmm. huge spike in testing. And then people, again, risk reducing you know, typically through surgeries, but sometimes through other means. So that's the first factor. Then we talk about environment. So again, my dad, somewhat tragically, I would say in hindsight, thought that he got his lung problem. He thought he got it from secondhand smoke. So he never smoked himself. But as he was trying to reconstruct, you know, why did this happen to me? The only thing he could come up with was secondhand smoke exposure. So there again, I think it's not just individual responsibility. I think there's public health initiatives uh, that are really health um, reduce these kind of environmental risks. So I grew up in Scotland, as I mentioned. I never thought or God, I would see the day where cigarette smoking was not allowed in Scottish pubs. And yet that is exactly what's happened. So wow. some of these policy decisions have also allowed us to make mm -hmm. choices that when we're out and being social, and this of course is in the pre-COVID times, I suppose, we were less likely to be exposed. Triggers and chance, I actually think are the trickiest ones because it's really hard to say in any given person, you know, what's a trigger and what's not. So I live in Utah now. We actually have a huge problem here with melanoma. And the reason for that is a lot of the population here is extremely fair skinned. And then we're at altitude. And then there's a lot of like really, again, well-meaning outdoor activities here, whether it's in the summertime or winter sports. And so what we know is this aggregate um, that trigger of UV exposure without a lot of melanin to protect the skin leads to a lot of melanoma. So that's like one obvious thing that comes to my mind. And then finally, chance. I think chance is the trickiest one because what chance tells me is that none of us is entirely immune um, as much as we might hope that our decisions will protect us. And you know, Shakespeare called it the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, I'd just say more simply bad luck. And I'll tell you, a patient who always sticks in my mind when we have these conversations, he was a young man in his 40s, a multiple-time triathlete, um, literally out of all the patients I've ever treated, probably the most fastidious about his diet and exercise, and yet he still got esophageal cancer, and it was metastatic when he was diagnosed, and he survived less than a year. And wow. I just looked at him and I thought, you know, and there was no obvious genetic cause. Um, there was literally nothing else I think he could have done. Um, and, and I got to tell you, type of social media, you know, I shared this story trying to prove that no one among us is entirely invulnerable. And of course, someone had the answer and they said, oh, he was so stressed 
from the um, training for the triathlons, that's what gave him cancer. And it was just like, you know, you can't necessarily win these arguments. You can't always win. <laughs> right. And, you know, newsflash, social media is a place where you're never going to make everybody happy. But, um, you know, that that example, and I deliberately made it extreme, is proof to me that, you know, you can reduce risk. I'm not entirely sure we'll ever get to 100% prevention. Definitely. And I think uh, the unfortunate story that you just shared about the uh, individual with esophageal cancer kind of underlines and um, speaks to our point that we all say at the podcast, which preventive medicine isn't about becoming God and living infinitely. It's not about like having no issues whatsoever. It's about managing what you can, leaving the rest up to chance or will or whatever you have that you believe in, if you believe in a higher power and living your life and enjoying your life. Yeah. And if something happens, then it happens. But otherwise, you do what you can within your power, which is everything you spoke of. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you when it comes to that, when you spoke of kind of genetics and environment, um, and in genetics kind of goes to screening, you brought up screening for genes like uh, BRCA1 gene and maybe the MEN1 gene, which we'll talk about. Yeah. But in general, we screen for some cancers more than others. So for example, we screen for colon cancer pretty routinely. We screen for breast cancer, not necessarily BRCA1 gene, but just breast cancer in general. We have our mammograms, we have colonoscopies. Why do we scan for those so much more than other things such as lung cancer, uterine cancer, and all those other things that are maybe m- might be more rare? Yeah, great question. I mean, it, it comes down to um, the use of resources at a public health level. So actually, almost everything you just mentioned has been fairly rigorously tested. And so whether people know it or not, there is evidence for a lot of the things that we do. And interestingly, Raghav, I mean, some of that evidence is still contested. There are some people who do not think that mammography, the way we currently do it, is worthwhile as a breast cancer screening tool. And talk about inflammatory opinions that will very quickly garner the ire of you know women who I think often rightly discern that their lives were uh, helped, sometimes maybe even saved, if we're going to be dramatic, by these screening methods. So you're surely familiar with, you know, one of the um, statistics in epidemiology is you know, the number needed to screen. So mm-hmm. what's the number of X tests you have to do to save one life? And so for mammography, there's various estimates. One very round ballpark figure is that for every thousand mammograms, maybe even closer to every 1200 mammograms, you're saving a life. And on some level, it sounds, you know, inhumane to sit here and say that's not worthwhile. But again, in a system with finite resources, and I think this is particularly an issue in you know, low and middle-income middle countries, um, you know, is that a worthwhile trade-off? So mammography is its own sort of very hot-button issue. Colonoscopy is fascinating. So this is definitely in my wheelhouse. Just this year, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force lowered the age mm-hmm. of screening colonoscopy from 50 to 45. And again, this was an enormously... Um, debated decision. Um, The reason I think colonoscopy is different, and you can accuse me of bias if you like, is when you do a colonoscopy, you're actually potentially removing the problem. You're not just identifying there's a problem, you're actually maybe even fixing it. So most of the time, a colon cancer will grow out of a precancerous polyp. So if a gastroenterologist or a surgeon goes in and takes the polyp out, you've now interrupted what we call the adenoma to carcinoma sequence. And so I tell my patients, it's like mowing the lawn and removing weeds before they choke out the good grass. And that's really the way I think about colonoscopy. The problem, of course, is that by shifting that age from 50 to 45, um, there are now something like 20 million Americans who are eligible overnight for this screening. And that puts an enormous strain 
on our system. There's only a you know finite number of gastroenterologists mm-hmm. or a finite number of pathologists, and we have to be ready to act on those results. And so that's kind of the tension. And then finally, you actually mentioned lung cancer. Lung cancer is fascinating because we actually are learning that for particular high-risk individuals, and again, I'll bring up smoking, um, doing low-dose, low-radiation-dose CT scan might actually work as a screening uh, approach. So bottom line is every cancer is different. You have to think about where is it located in the body and how accessible is it? And then what is the um, prevalence or scarcity of it? And does it make sense to then screen the whole population? And I'll bring out my pancreas as an example. So pancreatic cancer is famously deadly, but Mm -hmm. we have not yet found a really good way to screen for it. Because if we took everybody in in the country and did a CT scan to look at their pancreas, well, first of all, it's a huge cost. Secondly, those CTs carry radiation, right? That's how they work. They're stacks of x-rays. And so maybe you actually end up inflicting more damage than you do saving the lives of the people who were uh, diagnosed early. So you actually might be fascinated to know that one way of thinking about pancreas cancer is people who develop diabetes as adults while losing weight. Because the most common mechanism for Um, adult onset diabetes is weight gain leading to insulin resistance, right? Mm -hmm. But if you see someone who is becoming diabetic and they're losing weight, again, as as an adult, that's a signal that there might really be something wrong in the pancreas where the insulin comes from in the first place. So this is the kind of stuff that is being looked at as we speak. You bring up a lot of points there. I think there's two that I want to touch on. And one of those is uh, you talked about the potential for harm from the x-rays, just from like the radiation damage. But I'm reading other books like Overdiagnosis and uh, When We Do Harm. I believe that was the title of it. I read that a while ago. But there's also like these incidental healthcare harms that can happen. For example, if someone off the street that maybe has never smoked um, suddenly thinks that they want to get a low-dose CT for lung cancer, then they find something else that would otherwise be an incidental finding. Um, ends up being explored just because that's kind of what we do in medicine. If we see something, we have to solve it, right? Yeah. And we're not just going to leave something be. Otherwise, that could be malpractice. There's a whole bunch of other things that could happen from that. So I think that's one of the other points that I want to bring up, the harm for overdiagnosis. That's something you could speak to real quick. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct that tests beget tests. Um, and, you know, there's classic areas of the body, as you're well aware, where we tend to find um, abnormalities that might not have been of any clinical significance to that patient if we just left them alone. So there was a fascinating study out of um, Korea, South Korea, where they screened huge numbers of their population for thyroid cancer. So the thyroid is classically an organ that we we can find things that are abnormal looking on scan, uh, even if we're looking for something else. So let's say, for instance, I'm scanning the chest. I am looking at the lungs. Well, the thyroid gland is right there at the base of the neck. Mm -hmm. It's actually quite easy to find a nodule. And so what they did in in, in South Korea was screen huge numbers of people with ultrasound of the thyroid. And then there was a control group that wasn't screened. And there was basically no difference in um, thyroid cancer-related mortality, even when they found these nodules sooner. So you actually raise a fascinating point. And then finally, as long as we're talking about x-rays, we do worry in medicine about doing harm through the cumulative exposure to radiation. And again, here, it's not that that one single CT scan is necessarily going to cause a cancer, but we're increasingly cognizant of the amount of radiation that we expose patients to in their lifetime. So actually at my institution, where I work, 
every time you order a scan, it actually aggregates the radiation huh. dose over the patient's you know, treatment course at our facility. So you actually have a sense of, okay, this is approaching a threshold where I really, really need to be careful. Do I really need this scan? CT scans are just stacks of x-rays, basically. Uh, MRIs and ultrasounds actually incur no radiation exposure. So I don't want people to be scared of scans or even CTs. I just think it's important on both sides, the patient understand their risk and that the doctor be thinking about that too. Definitely. And then the other thing that I want to bring up is you talked about um, kind of scanning and screening from the medicine standpoint. We're talking about like public health costs, the cost of healthcare, and how we have to be prepared if there's sudden sudden influx of 20 million people that suddenly start to come getting colonoscopies. But on the other hand of that, when you look at the patient perspective, um, cancer oftentimes begets a lot of fear. Cancer, the word cancer itself can oftentimes bring a lot of fearful uh, connotations and just negative um, ideas. And people want to know and do what they like. They want to be able to control what they can and go get scanned. So when should someone part of the general population, what do they get scanned for? What should they actually be worried for? Because what you're saying, it seems like maybe I should go and ask my PCP and request a low dose uh, CT of my lungs just to see. Right. So when should they be worried? When should they actually ask to get scanned? I'm so glad you brought up the primary care physician because I actually think they're the, the, the key here. So for instance, look at me. So if someone gets to me with a diagnosis of colon cancer as a medical oncologist, I actually don't even get to see the earliest stage. I'm seeing people in later stages who probably require chemo. That's probably why they're coming mm-hmm. to me. So before that, let's think about the steps. So before that, in the best case scenario, as part of their routine health maintenance, and again, we can argue the age, but let's say around 50, they've had a discussion with their primary care physician about doing a colonoscopy or at the very least testing the stool. Um, Because again, if we catch these things early enough, like I said, a colonoscopy that removes a polyp can sort of intervene, not just as screening, but as prevention, and then they never get to me in the first place. So I actually think I love the the notion of self-advocating patients and all the empowerment thereof, but I still think that direct-to-consumer testing, and this is definitely... Um, emerged in in genetic testing is fraught with risk because there's not always there, not always a health care professional there to help counsel you with whatever you find. Like I cannot tell you how many people have brought me things that they say ordered from an internet vendor and are now struggling to make sense of it. And sometimes it introduces enormous uncertainty. So I think you're right. I think the, the very broad, but I hope still helpful answer is to still lean on their primary care provider for guidance. Because here's the other thing, like I said, this changes not infrequently. Like the way we follow breast cancer and certainly the way we follow colon cancer, it's not set in stone, it, it changes. And it's actually your PCPs, part of their job, uh, we call health maintenance, is to keep track of those things for all the patients in their panel. So actually, I think having that conversation and being honest about what worries you. So for instance, if you came to me as your PCP, you said, Dr. Lewis, I want a low dose chest CT. I, I think if I had time, I would try to you know find out why that's a concern of yours and make absolutely sure you weren't symptomatic. That's actually a key distinction. There's a huge difference between a screening test, which is just looking at your risk on the whole, and a diagnostic test, which is wor- working out a specific concern or ailment that you have. And the other thing that you brought up that I really liked was that um, kind of 
uh, that genetic test that can be sold on online now, because previously these weren't accessible to people. You had to go to a hospital, you had to go to a doctor, you had to have a reason to get these genetic tests, but now you can just have, um, things come right to your front door and suddenly you can get tested for all these things. And, um, I follow a person on Instagram that recently was diagnosed with BRCA1 and then, um, they were able to catch it and like deal with it appropriately. But then they also started recommending a lot of their um, followers to get screened and do all these things. And that's phenomenal. I like people taking uh, power of their health and doing all that. But then it also brings the question of people are going to start buying all these genetic tests online and getting screened, quote unquote. And then it brings up your point of what are they going to do after that? And then also it increases the healthcare burden where now you have so many people coming to a primary care physician asking, do I need to get screened for this? Do I need to get screened for this? So, and all, the other thing also that you, I want to tie into this real quick. I was just bringing up about your family history. You said it was really powerful to know. And a lot of times people don't know their family history and yes. they get even more fearful because, oh shoot, what if I actually have a rare, um, multiple endocrine neoplasia as well? And I just didn't know anything about it. Right. Yeah. Well said. So, you know, caveat mTOR with direct to consumer and genetic testing, because mm-hmm. you know, genetic counseling is its whole you know, very valid field within medicine, within healthcare. And it's because our understanding of the human genome, which is 3 billion pairs of DNA letters long, is constantly evolving. And you know well that when we order these genetic tests and we try to sequence all 3 billion letters, we often find what are called literally variants of unknown significance. And inherent in that phrase is we don't yet know what that means. And the genetic counselors have this wonderful sort of iterative database where those things are constantly being clarified as, oh, you know what? That's actually a totally benign change from what we consider to be a normal sequence or, oh my goodness, this one letter change actually confers cancer risk. And again, not to fear monger at all, but I'll be very, very honest. One thing I think about a lot is just how little a change it required for my family and myself to acquire this uh, genetic syndrome. So out of those 3 billion letters, what happened was at one specific point on my 11th chromosome, two letters got deleted and one got inserted. And that's enough out of the whole length of my DNA. That's enough to give me my condition. It's, it can be that subtle. So it really requires someone who has constant access to updated information to help you interpret your own genetic risk. And then back to the family history very briefly. I still think that's an incredibly powerful tool, but as you said, it's actually rare that someone has as much detail as I might want about their family. You know, not long ago, people didn't talk about this. And then also, it, you know, you may just know that your granddad had a form of cancer. You might not know what type. Exactly. And, and then finally, they all, I'll hear, oh, so-and-so was so unfortunate. They had breast cancer and they had liver cancer and they had bone cancer and they had brain cancer. And I'm like, well, hold on just a second, is it possible it was breast cancer that went to those other sites? And then, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not reasonable to expect that someone's going to have all that information at their fingertips. My own father's records are long gone. I have no access to them, and he was treated through 1994. So this is the problem that we run into when we sort of expect too much uh, granularity about a family history. 
We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. All right. So we were talking a lot about um, kind of screening and all that with cancer, but now we're going to go back to that can of worms. We're going to go back to diet and kind of everything relating to diet and supplements and all the things with cancer. Um, we were talking about sugar and how a lot of people blame people's uh, development of cancer and sugar. Oh, you were feeding the cells too much. They grew out of control because you were just kept giving them a constant supply of sugar. Um, how big of an impact does diet actually have on cancer risk? <laughs> yeah, that's the million dollar question, right? Um, it's very interesting. I actually get to see um, a lot when I'm treating somebody and I'm checking their blood work, say every two weeks, I'm getting to see constantly the effect of their diet on not just relationship to their cancer, but their ability to tolerate treatment. So I often tell my patients, all the treatments I give have to be two things, ideally, effective, but also tolerable. And I'll tell you, just as a general rule, because you mentioned in the beginning, I also do hematology, sort of the, the building blocks that you need to make the blood cells the red blood cells, the white blood cells, and the platelets in particular, you know, the basic building blocks are iron, um, vitamin B12, and folic acid. Um, and there are some other things, but those are the three I focus on the most with my patients. And so I think a, a diet that is well-balanced in those things, I can objectively show, help to make the cells that protect us from infection, help give us energy, <laughs> help prevent us from bleeding. And what's tricky there is obviously when you think about iron and B12 in particular, you know, meat is going to come up. Meat is going to be raised. And I'll point out, I've actually got patients who are very strict uh, vegans, and I can get them through treatment, but it does require being very, very careful about sources of um, iron and B12 in particular. And then finally, you mentioned supplements. Um, you know, I have to be very wary sometimes about um, how well validated supplements are. You know, I know the FDA is under you know a lot of scrutiny these days for some of the decisions they've made as a government agency. But on the other hand. Uh, I think in good faith, they're usually, you know, tasked with protecting the public health. And what that means is a lot of supplements, as you're aware, are not FDA regulated. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's buyer beware. You don't always know what you're getting. Um, this is very specific to patients that are going through cancer treatment. It's hugely important that you have an open relationship with your oncologist where you feel comfortable telling them what you're taking. And, again, I'll tell my patients, listen, I don't mind <clears throat> you pursuing, say, complementary and alternative medicine or using supplements is just you have to tell me otherwise i don't know how to interpret what i'm seeing in you or in your blood work so as long as there's that kind of honesty i mean hopefully that's the underpinning of any good doctor patient relationship i think that some supplements are okay um, but again i think that um, diet and cancer have this really tricky almost inextricable relationship and i actually get to measure that when someone is on treatment so this might end up being more of a rant of frustration rather than a question on my part, but you brought up the alternative and complementary treatments to cancer. And uh, famously, Steve Jobs, obviously, um, who had he, – he went his own route for cancer treatment, which ended up not working out very well for him, unfortunately. But um, I see a lot of times, especially within like Eastern medicine, a lot of times that people go towards these homeopathic and whatever all these complementary uh, medicines are instead of – 
uh, chemo and the Western medicines just because they don't trust it or they think that they have more disadvantages to advantages like you were saying, all those side effects. And they think that they trust those and like there's this juice cleanses. See, this is becoming a rant now. I'm losing my train of thought, which is <laughs> not really good, but there's all these different things because it just really frustrates me when people really buy into these and say that these are going to cure me. I'm going to rely on these and then end up not getting the treatment and having um, unfortunate maybe dying from their cancer when it could have been prevented. Um, so I guess the question here is not to just add on to this is, um, are there any alternative complementary therapies that you've seen that actually work or have an effect? Or is it kind of just the Western treatment of chemo, surgery, um, radiation, that kind of work? Yeah, I think the key word in your rant, which was actually very well said, <laughs> was, uh, uh, that was- That was terrible, no, I'm no, sorry. No. <laughs> I, think, I think the key word was instead. Like I think people view it as either or, and it can actually be both. Now, again, I want to be very clear. I am an allopathic physician. I trained in Western medicine. To a certain extent, your listeners might say, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, he's not he's not versed in these things. And, and they, to a certain extent, would be right. But since you asked the question, I'll give you a very specific answer. So I trained at the Mayo Clinic in the middle of Minnesota in the frozen tundra. <laughs> and we had two acupuncturists from China. And oh, wow. first of all, I can only imagine. I thought that. you were going somewhere else with that. <laughs> Well, I was pointing out it must have been complete culture shock for them when they came <laughs> to that particular environment. But my point also is, you know, Mayo is a very traditional sort of bastion mm -hmm. of, you know, what we would say in Western medicine, evidence-based medicine, right? But I have to tell you, it struck me during training. You know, I was learning sort of the potency of, of chemo drugs. I was a fellow. I was being very cautious, not that I'm not now, but I was being very cautious and observant about, okay, if I give drug X, side effect Y is likely to happen. And there was patients who had such horrendous nausea and vomiting, which I know is one of the classic stereotypes of mm -hmm. chemo, but the only thing that worked for them was acupuncture. And I raise that because, again, I know nothing about meridians or how the needles are inserted, um, but it, it worked. You know, I saw it with my own eyes. And, and so I've often cited that as an example of, listen, there are certainly things that help my patients that I don't understand and I was not trained in. On the other hand, I also don't think it's fair to entirely discard the body of evidence that we've amassed in, in, in Western medicine as, you know, illegitimate or inauthentic. And remember also, you know, I, I actually made this point recently on Twitter, clinical trials, those are, those are people. Those are patients that agreed to participate. And in a way, I actually kind of feel like it's important to honor what they did. You know, no patient wants to feel like a guinea pig. But, you know, clinical research is, especially these days, often extremely tightly regulated. The ethics of it are scrutinized as they should be. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like crazy doctors and mad scientists experimenting on patients. It's really trying to push the field forward because we know, we know the standard of care is not good enough. And I've seen things get way better from my poor father had treatment in the late 80s, early 90s to now, but we're nowhere close to where we need to be. Um, and, and again, I get it because you said, you know, why would someone be sort of pulled away from traditional medicine is because, you know, our outcomes historically have been not great. And sometimes people saw their loved ones, you know, suffer greatly um, from treatments that didn't benefit them. So I, I get it. I really, really do. I think that, again, there is a happy medium there, but we both need to admit what it is that we don't know. 
Definitely. Um, you kind of just brought up one of the points that I was going to make, which was um, that people look at Western medicine not having the greatest outcomes when it comes to cancer. And then so many ongoing clinical trials, it always seems that there's clinical trials going on in oncology. There's always a new cancer drugs. People are like, oh, they still don't know what they're doing. So we're just going to try something else instead. It'll probably have the same effect anyway. So yeah, um, there's I, that. Yeah, I push back on that because, I mean, if, if your oncologist is complacent in saying, okay, well, what we have right now is good enough, actually, that's a much bigger problem. And, and you're right. Like I recently checked to see how many trials were ongoing for cancer, and it was literally like 80,000. So um, because, as you mentioned earlier, cancer is not just one big monolithic thing. It's mm-hmm. been broken down by where it started what stage is it at, the characteristics of the patient. So it's getting very, very specific indeed. And one of the things that I also want to add on to there is that at least it's being studied. Um, and you should more than likely put your fate in something that at least people are rigorously testing, as you're saying, through the um, conventional way that we have in Western medicine. Everything is rigorously tested, all the ethics, everything. So I'd rather put my faith in that rather than something that might not be as well tested. Um, so at least you know what you're kind of getting into. You know some of the data, at least you're not going completely blind. Um, one of the other questions I had for you kind of is uh, in your Medscape video, which I found online, um, you're talking about how there's so much information out there. And uh, sometimes there's mis- uh, information overload and sometimes there's misinformation uh, buried with another information. And there's a lot of it when it comes to cancer. If you Google cancer, you will find like millions and millions of things that don't have anything to do with oncology, don't have anything to do with medicine. We're not written by an oncologist. How do people know how to filter out the noise and find good information when it comes to oncology? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, you're actually right that um, search engine optimization may not work to a patient's benefit here. Because um, mm-hmm. again, I, I'm often amazed. I don't blame patients one iota for using a search engine like Google to find information. In fact, there's great evidence, as long as we're talking about studies, 97% of patients when they're diagnosed, and this makes perfect sense because it's your life on the line, will try to find information online. And of those, something like 94% will use Google. And it's funny, doctors sometimes get very sort of affronted by this and talk about Dr. Google. Again, I would say, you know, put yourself in the patient's shoes. Like, most of our patients did not go through all of our years of medical training. What do you expect them to do? On the other hand, I think the patients have to be, I don't want to say cynical, but careful about the results they get back. And it's kind of a, you know, here it's almost like any sort of um, consumer decision. You know, if it sounds too good to be true, it, it likely is. Um, and I would also ask yourself, well, how did this result get so high in my search? Did it get there because it was paid for and this is some sort of for-profit enterprise or did it get there um, by clinical merit? And actually, I'll I'll tell you, I think the greatest resource if patients want to independently verify, um, say, a treatment or even a center is other patients. So it's interesting when you look at what doctors do when we are trying to vet something far and away the two greatest sources that we rely on are our own peers and then our peer-reviewed literature. So again, those are like our medical journals, which are written in their own language and are you know, pretty complex. And, and again, without being condescending, probably not great for um, many people to read. On the other hand, it shows you doctors are human beings. We look to people that are like us and speak our language. And one of the things I love about the modern era, social media, you've already mentioned, I think for me, social media is 99% good and 1% you know, trolls. And I can put them aside <laughs> to get to the good part. So when I was diagnosed with my genetic syndrome, which has a 
um, prevalence of about one in 30,000. I didn't know anybody like me. So one of my first instincts was to co-found a Facebook group. Now, Facebook's a whole other problem now, but my point <laughs> is it, it was a place to gather. And it was fascinating to me because, again, I've done this now for over a decade as a patient as well as a doctor mm-hmm. to see how the good stuff rises to the top. Like if you if you are using your peers and like-minded individuals to curate resources for you, I actually think what you get back is much more reliable than if you just go by a single Google search. So long answer to your question, because it needed to be, um, I think there's some, again, discretion needed when you are clicking on something in Google, just asking yourself, okay, how did this, how did this get here? How did this get to me? Sure. And then one of the other things that comes up when you Google things is um, other carcinogenic materials. We talked about diet. We talked about environment. We talked about genetics. Um, Expanding a little bit on the environment. um, People talk about like plastics and just these various things and pollutants that can also contribute to cancer risk. Um, We don't honestly know that much, at least to my knowledge, about these things and how they contribute to cancer risk. Um, I know there's always these lawsuits going on, Monsanto, blah, blah, blah. Um, is there any truth to these things or is a lot of it just fear mongering? Oh boy. Golly. Um, I know I'm, you might not know the answer to this as well. Yeah. I just had to ask. No, no, no. <laughs> the honest answer is it, it's really unclear. I'll, I'll say two things. You may know this, but there was recently a judgment and I don't want to libel or slander anybody, but recently a judgment, I think against Johnson & Johnson for a very putative link between talcum powder and a gynecologic mm-hmm. cancer, which shocked me because I was thinking as an oncologist about sort of, if I was a lawyer in court and I was trying to demonstrate, you know, guilt, it, you know, I'd have to, you know, assemble the burden of proof, right? And I was kind of amazed that before, you know, jury, I believe, they were able to demonstrate that all these sort of cause and effects tests happened to link the talc to the cancer. That's That to me as an oncologist is kind of amazing. But it also showed me that, wow, we really don't understand um, all of our environmental exposures. So maybe the one practical piece of advice I would give your audience, because I do it myself, is I no longer warm foods in plastic containers. It is very, very convenient, uh, I suppose, to do so. We, we do suspect that when you say microwave a plastic container, you're changing the, the structure of, of the container and maybe making it more likely that chemicals will permeate the food that's then being consumed. That I know that's like a, a tiny and very speculative piece of advice. That's maybe the only thing I can say. I'm not entirely convinced that, you know, say bottled water at room temperature is a problem. My daughter is 13. She's extremely environmentally conscious. We have minimized plastic use in our household, not because I'm an oncologist, because she's thinking about the future, and I really respect that. But if I had to draw a straight line between plastic and cancer, I would have a very hard time doing that. Sure. And the reason I bring this up is because at the at the Preventive Medicine Podcast, we're all about people living their best lives and trying um, to make sure that they're not fearful of all these random things that people might throw at them or that people are trying to make a quick buck off of them by saying things in the name of health like, oh, you shouldn't eat from a specific type of container because it might cause you to have cancer down the road. Right. So we're very anti against those things. So we just try to keep everything as evidence-based and like clear as possible so people do less worrying and more living is yeah, essentially what that. we're all about. I, Absolutely. That's great. So with uh, about 10 minutes left, I want to ask you, like when it comes to an oncologist, um, as a patient, what are the biggest things that you would tell them to kind of live a healthier life? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you in my own case, I mean, I'll try to practice what I preach. I can already tell by talking to you. I'm not nearly as fit as you are, but you know, exercise has been a huge part of my life. And I'll be honest, it was not for a very long time. 
um, when I was in medical training, I was the ultimate hypocrite because, you know, my residency hours were, you know, 80 hours a week. Um, I wasn't going to the gym. I wasn't eating right. So I wasn't sleeping very well. And now that I'm older, you know, I've realized that, you know, if I want to take care of other people, I have to take care of myself first. And I know there's this whole movement towards self-care, which I actually think is extremely healthy. Um, and so what I tell my patients is to the extent that you're able, I think exercise has like a, a ton of benefits, both tangible and unseen. It's often been said, I think you know this, that if exercise were a pill, it would be worth, you know, trillions of dollars to the pharmaceutical industry because it just helps you in so many ways. It's helped me physically. It's helped me mentally. So the most tangible example I'll give you is uh, when I had my pancreas surgery, I saw it coming from a little ways off. I had time to repair it. So I worked out really hard every day in the months leading up to my surgery. And it no doubt helped me with my recovery. And what's really fascinating, if we're going to get quantitative, is one of the other places I worked, MD Anderson Cancer Center, the pancreas surgeons were actually looking at patients' muscle mass to determine how well they were going to do with the operation. And, you know, they weren't asking any of us to be bodybuilders, but what they would do is take the CT scans and go down to the level of the hip flexors. And what they were actually trying to judge is how well is this person going to be able to get up and walk after the surgery? Mm. Because as a general rule, the sooner you're mobile, the fewer uh, complications you have. You're not uh, as likely to get blood clots. You're less likely to get pneumonia. Um, and it, again, it was fascinating to me, and it's so intuitive when you actually see it out loud, but trying to make this somewhat quantitative link between um, exercise, some muscle mass, and outcome, um, I think is just fascinating. In fact, we know in oncology that bodies in motion stay in motion, so I encourage my patients, listen, even if it's just walking, like whatever you can do that day, um, it does benefit you to move. Um, and, and then, like I said earlier, you know, I think that there are um, psychological advantages. I'm a full believer now in, in endorphins, uh, I think are very real. Uh, and I actually think it's an antidepressant. Like after my surgery, I really, really think it helped um, psychologically to exercise when I was able, because I was so used to doing it preoperatively. I was actually like, really eager um, to my own, almost to my own surprise that I wanted to get back to exercising. And I've tried to keep pretty regular about that ever since. So I, again, it's very kind of easy, almost generic advice to say, watch what you eat and exercise. But as an oncologist, I fully believe the benefits in the latter. Definitely. And I think I also want to touch on that a little bit and expand on that. Um, when it comes to cancer patients, sometimes people think of them as being fragile yeah. as once you're going through chemotherapy, once you've had the surgery that suddenly you can't do what you were doing before for whatever reason. So they encourage, oh, take it easy. You don't have to go that hard. But actually, as you're saying, exercise can be hugely beneficial, not only for recovery of getting back to doing what they're supposed to be doing, but also for the antidepressant, for the anti-analgesic effects as well. It can be huge for pain relief as well. There's just so many different benefits. So I love that you brought up that up as well. It, it, thank you for, by the way, shattering that myth that every cancer patient is like incredibly frail. And, and it, I'll say two things. Number one, the only patient I've ever had to kind of put the brakes on was a formal former NFL player. I mean, he told me the amount he was benching. I was like, you know what? You may want to back that off. Just a little <laughs> bit. Um, largely actually, because I was worried about his port. I was worried he was going to displace the IV. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other thing is, this is, this is a key message. Patients are not necessarily visible to you. And in fact, in the pre-COVID times when I had students and such in my clinic, I would play this game called the waiting room game where I would say, I bet you can't look out there and tell me 
you know, to a person who's the patient, who's the loved one. And it's because a lot of these sort of previous stigmata of patients, whether it was hair loss or uh, muscle wasting or being actively nauseous and vomiting, a lot of those have gone away. Not entirely, but the whole point of oncology or one of the points of modern oncology is to have people feeling good. Um, 95 plus percent of my practice is outpatient, meaning my patients live at home come to the clinic, see me, and then go back home. They're not living in the hospital. And mm-hmm. that is a paradigm that has shifted um, very, very dramatically in the last um, decade, decades. And, and finally, I'll say without violating anyone's confidence or confidentiality, I recently had a patient who celebrated being done with chemo by going and essentially sort of recreating the Tour de France. He sent me a picture from the top of one of the Pyrenees, I believe, where he just cycled wow. up. And I was just like, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that we should be celebrating is that, you know, people are not to your, to your point, you know, supposed to be living in hermetically sealed containers. We want them to enjoy your life. And I love your sort of notion of not being so worried that you're paralyzed to do anything. Definitely. Um, I love that. I love that story of the Tour de France as well. It's amazing. Um, so with the last couple minutes that we have, in case anyone fell asleep during this episode or they're just like zoned out, because I know I personally do that sometimes when listening to things. Um, can you kind of summarize if someone comes up to you in a Starbucks, recognize you, hey, Dr. Lewis, I recognize you from Twitter. Um, and they ask you, how do I avoid cancer? How do I reduce my risk for cancer? What do you give them? What are the cliff notes? What do you tell them? Well, actually, that literally happened to me last weekend, and my son was like, "Whoa, Dad, you're <laughs> I was like, "Well, okay, let's let's pump the brakes." And I'm an oncologist, um, so I would say this: uh, I would say know in as much detail as you can know your family history. It's definitely, and I say this without hyperbole, saved my life to know my family history and to figure that out. So it was definitely worth your while to invest to the degree that it's possible in knowing your family history. Um, ideally, your primary care doctor, I'm going to bring them back in the picture, knows your family history in that same level of detail and is staying abreast of screening that is right for you. You know, you might get to see your primary care physician, gosh, what, 15 minutes once a year? You want to get as much yield as you can out of that precious appointment time. And one of the things to talk about is health maintenance and screening. We talked also about environment and triggers. There are certain things that we know we ought not to do. Um, again, as much as I want to destigmatize lung cancer, we do know that to the extent that you can stop smoking, uh, that's very helpful for a host of reasons, including cardiovascular health. And I think that exercise is hugely underrated. Like I said, if it was a tablet we could take, probably be less fun. And, um, <laughs> and you know, the, the, the health benefits that are conferred there are just enormous. And again, I think it's important not to shame people. Like not everyone is going to be an Olympian. I'm certainly not. But to the extent that you can do it, it does give you some sense of um, empowerment, speaking as a patient. And then lastly, I think this is the message I drive home is that there's this chance element. And I say that not to make people scared or paranoid. You use the phrase fear-mongering. It's just to realize that you know, bad things unfortunately do happen on a, on a cellular level. Um, and that means that when someone's diagnosed with cancer, it's not necessarily their fault. They could have done literally everything right, whatever that means, and this could still have happened to them. And so we have to be careful not to be judgmental about that. So uh, if, if someone came out to be at Starbucks, that would be my two-minute answer. 
Perfect. Well, I think that was almost exactly two minutes. So you fit the bill. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think we uh, covered a lot of what people would think about or ask when it comes to cancer. So I think it provides a lot of value. Well, thank you for shining a light on this. And I know my patients, um, I think it'll really resonate with them and hopefully with your audience. For sure. And if you guys aren't already following uh, Dr. Lewis on Twitter, then go ahead and do that. Um, all of his social media stuff will be down below in the show notes. So make sure you go and do that. Once again, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Roger. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.